Creative Babble. Hey guys, Melissa from Moms and Murder here, inviting you to check out my new show, Criminality, where I'll be taking a look at crime and reality TV with my co-host, Rebecca Sebastian. Hi friends, I'm Rebecca, host of Dialogue, a true crime conversation. Face it, we all love to hate reality TV because what's better than escaping your dumpster fire of a life than watching someone else's? Join us as we discuss everything from a teen mom with feathers in her hair to a 90-day fiance who enjoys a box of matches, and we may just call Nancy Joe while wearing our best pair of little brown BB shoes that only cost $29. And we can't forget the true crimes of the real housewives. Guys, they all have mugshots. That's where I'll be lending my expertise. We'll break it all down for you every other Friday beginning February 12th, 2021. So go to criminalityshow.com and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Criminality, because loving reality isn't a crime. Wow, Rebecca, we made it to episode three in our series, The Business of Cults. I know, and we lived to tell about it. It's time to get to the bottom of why some cults continue and why many just implode, and what happens to the remaining members when that happens. We also need to cover some lingering questions we might have. Good, because I have a question for you, Rebecca. What is the difference between a cult and a religion? Wow. Okay, that's a loaded question and probably depends on who you ask. It's true, there are definitely similarities, but I think today we should highlight the differentiating factors between cults and religion. Yeah, you're right. In the beginning, I bet even the Romans and the Jews considered early Christians a cult. But over time, these religious movements seem to coagulate and become normalized, right? Yeah, in the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints movement, they considered Mormonism a cult. But today, Mormonism is an established religion that continues to evolve. So, Rebecca, did you talk to any expert who can speak on this? Um, define expert. The first question people ask you when they find out if you're from Utah is, are you Mormon and are you polygamist? I consider myself Mormon 2.0. I'm Mormon. Yeah, I grew up Molly Mormon. Those voices you just heard were various cast members of The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. Oh my gosh, there's so many misconceptions about Mormons that we're polygamist, that we all share a husband, that women don't work outside the home, and that we all have six to eight children. A lot of that's true, though. You're not supposed to drink, but just like every other religion, there are reformed Mormons called Jack Mormons, and many of them do drink. A closet bar is a thing in Utah. You set up a bar in one of the closets so no one sees you drinking. Wow, those ladies really terrify me. But in all seriousness, there are some cults that leverage the perks of being a religion. Take, for example, the Church of Scientology. Under the eyes of the IRS, the Church of Scientology is considered a religious organization with tax-exempt status. And this is a group accused of human rights violation, including the use of slave labor, inhumane punishment, and the inability for members to freely express themselves. Yeah, and this right here is the rub. We can't in good conscience label all religions cults because most religions don't intend to harm or hurt people. And for the most part, you can freely come and go without any repercussions. That's right. 
And boy, do we have a lot to talk about in this episode, right? Yeah. Today, we're finally going to divulge what happened when you and I visited businesses that are operated by cults. I'm Rebecca Sebastian with the Dialogue Podcast. And I'm Javier Leva with the Pretend Podcast. And today is our last episode in the series we're calling The Business of Cults. In this episode, we're going to talk about why some cults go big and why others fail and find out if some cults have an exit strategy. Picture this, a foggy evening, the whisper of secrets in the air, and an invitation to step back into the glamorous and mysterious 1920s. That's the backdrop of June's Journey, the game that's been keeping me glued to my phone lately. Instead of doom scrolling on social media, I am actually playing the part of June Parker, a daring detective with a personal mission to solve her sister's murder. And let me tell you, it is a roller coaster of emotions and puzzles. What's to love? Well, first of all, the thrill of hunting for hidden objects. I'm a sucker for these kinds of games. It's kind of like those books that we grew up with, but with a storyline that keeps thickening. Plus, the game takes place in New York to Paris, uncovering clues of scandalous family secrets that make you feel like a real detective. If you're ready for a dose of mystery, romance, and the glamour of the 1920s, June's Journey is waiting for you. Download it for free on iOS and Android, and let's see who cracks the case first. Rebecca, in season three of my podcast, Pretend, I covered the Word of Faith Fellowship Church. And one of the most interesting things about that sect is that they have a sister church in Brazil. Everything in the Brazil church looks exactly the same as the headquarters in Spindale, North Carolina. One former member even told me that the sanctuary in both countries is exactly the same, all the way down to the chairs and the fake plants. Okay, that's a little creepy. Yeah. I wanted to see what cult expert Rick Allen Ross had to say about this. Rebecca and I have been like researching all these cults, but we noticed that they have almost like a franchise. McDonald's has restaurants all across the world and a cheeseburger or a, a Big Mac tastes the same at every McDonald's. And that's because they figured out how to re replicate that model. Can you give us some examples of, of some some cults that have franchised in a way. Well, you know, the some that are very widely known that have been called cults would be, for example, Scientology, which is worldwide, and they have their orgs or their branches all over the place. And uh, they're constantly trying to recruit people online. They have their their own uh, web presence. Uh, they also have an entertainment channel that they now control. Another example would be Transcendental Meditation, which was begun by Ma Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who was the guru to the Beatles, 
When he died, his fortune far exceeded the combined worth of the Beatles, including McCartney with his one billion. It's estimated that Maharishi controlled an empire based on meditation and and franchising meditation all over the world that totaled somewhere in the neighborhood of between six and nine billion dollars. So he was incredibly successful. And of course, why was he so successful? He created a brand and the brand was TM. And uh, wherever you 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 uh, access TM, it was the same basic product. And uh, so Maharishi was an example of really good marketing. And really, if you look at the cult phenomenon as a business, you can really get a handle on it better because a lot of these cult leaders become very wealthy. And keep in mind that many of them declare tax-exempt religious nonprofit status. So they're not paying any money on their income. And they're also, they make control a great deal of property like Scientology and Maharishi and pay no property taxes as well. Rebecca, we should ask him about the two cults that we plan to visit that that have businesses. So the one that I was going to visit was, it's controlled by the 12 tribes. Do you know about that one? They have alleys all across the country. Oh, yeah. Okay, but before we get Rick's take, Javier, why don't you describe this lesser-known cult? The 12 Tribes is a religious movement started by Gene Spriggs in 1972. It started around the same time as the Jesus Movement when young evangelical Christians started to move the church back to a more biblical time. This is also the era that birthed the term Jesus Freak. But back to the 12 Tribes sect. You probably never heard of this group. And until recently, I'd never heard of this group until we started researching this series. This ministry started out as a small group of teenagers who operated a coffee shop from the leader's home. And eventually the group started a commune and opened up a restaurant called the Yellow Deli. Over time, the group opened various Yellow Delis across the country. In the 1980s and in the 90s, they began opening branches all over the world, including Canada, Australia, Brazil, Spain, Germany, Argentina, and the UK. In addition to the Yellow Delis, the sect also owns hostels, farms, schools, factories producing candles, soaps, body lotion. They also run a printing facility, a furniture manufacturing plant, and a construction company. Wow, what an ambitious group. Yeah, these guys do everything, and many wonder if this is even a cult or just a misunderstood religious organization. Well, throughout their existence, there have been various reports of child abuse. In the early 2000s, an undercover journalist filmed six adults beating children with a cane in a cellar. The children got a total of 83 strokes. Plus, there have been other allegations of child abuse. That is horrible. Let's hear what Rick Allen Ross had to say about the 12 tribes. Well, you know, 12 tribes and I have a long history. In fact, uh, ex-members came to me and reported labor violations. They were basically running essentially sweatshops where they exploited labor and they particularly had children working for them. Wow, there are some dangerous accusations flying around about this group. But if you put that aside, they sound like a pretty robust business. Yeah, the Yellow Deli, which I'm about to go visit, is run by 12 tribe members who reportedly work for free. I mean, this organization has managed to power through the controversy and has continued operating. 
Are they a tax-exempt organization? Actually, the group operates a for-profit organization with religious purpose, so they actually do pay taxes. Okay, so you're going to go see them in person. What's the plan? Well, I plan to go to the Yellow Deli closest to me, which is in Hidden Night, North Carolina. Hidden Night. Sounds biblical. Oh, yeah. Where in the state of North Carolina is that? It is in the middle of nowhere. The town of Hidden Night has a population of, wait for it, 266 people. The closest <gasps> town is in Hickory, North Carolina, which is actually a really small town. Javier, there are more residents that live in my apartment building than in Hidden Night. I'm terrified for you. Are you scared? <laughs> Not really. I mean, I looked them up on Google and they have great reviews. And actually, the place sounds really amazing. Plus, I suckered my co-host from Criminal Conduct, John Taylor, to come with me. Oh, good, good. Safety in numbers. Hi, John. <laughs> Rebecca, I couldn't believe it. I exited the highway and drove past barns and cow pastures, and there was nothing on the way to this place. I mean, I kept waiting for civilization, but it never materialized. Then, out of nowhere, I reached the stoplight, and there it was. The Yellow Deli. <gasps> All right, I'm in, where am I? Hidden Night, Hidden Night, North Carolina. I'm about to be John Taylor, my co-host for Criminal Conduct at the Yellow Deli, which is run by a cult. And I have to describe this place. It was a huge two-story brick building. I mean, you could literally fit all 266 residents of Hidden Night in this restaurant. Next to it was a building which is like a commissary slash bakery that's run by the 12th tribe's members. And actually, they, they had the whole block. The whole, it looked like that whole area was run by the 12th tribe members. And here's the kicker. They're open 24 hours a day, except for Saturdays. Why anyone would come here at 3 a.m. is beyond <laughs> me. We got there at noon, you know, right as the restaurant was opening on Sunday. You got us on the list? Yep. And we just couldn't believe it. There was like 30 to 40 people waiting for them to open. Where the heck did these people come from? How y'all doing? Good, how you doing? Great, good, good. Good to see you. Head up the spiral stairs there, close to me at the top. Uh, okay, once inside, that's when I was truly floored. The woodwork was incredibly detailed. Wow. Spiral staircase. This is nice. <laughs> this is nice. Yeah, we're going up, man. This is such a cool restaurant. Oh, uh, yeah. First yeah. time? Yeah, never been here before. Where y'all from? I'm Raleigh, and he's from Henderson. Henderson. All yeah. right. Well, glad you're here. Hey, so today, the soup of the day is salmon chowder. What did you say it was? Salmon chowder. Okay. It's our very own salmon. We we caught the salmon up there in Alaska. You got Pest. restaurants in Alaska? We've got we've got an industry in Alaska where we, wow. we catch the salmon, okay. we process it. Wow. And then we have um, pesto. And in the center of the restaurant, there was this elevator that would carry the food from the kitchen to the second floor. That's like pretty elaborate. What is that? It's like a, what is it? Like? A dumbwaiter. A dumbwaiter. Yeah. So it goes. They Hopefully, don't offend anybody saying that. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So you great. guys are really open 24-7? We are. Like 24, do, 5, or 6. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but do people actually come, like, in the middle of the night? Oh, yeah, for sure. Wow. People are, yeah. I have to say, everyone was extremely kind and pleasant. They seemed very hippy-dippy, if I had to describe them. The waiters and the cooks were very young. And get this, this was kind of a surprise. 
the bathrooms were gender neutral. Huh. Yeah, I believe the sign on the door said, quote, whatever you are. But the place seemed to be run by a few elders. The men had long white beards and the women dressed very modestly, very conservative. And everyone looked like they shop at Goodwill. Well, um, I love Goodwill, so we'll let that one slide. <laughs> How long have you guys been around? Uh, in the region for about 50 years. Over in Tennessee, we started a restaurant out there about oh, wow. 50 years ago called Yellow Deli. Oh, so there's, there's more than one? Yeah, yeah, we got, we got Yellow Delis in Japan, down South America. <laughs> wow. I'll get you a little flyer about it. Oh, I'd love yeah. to. Yeah, this is the coolest thing. And as soon as we sat down, we started asking questions, but not too many questions because we didn't want to raise suspicion. Or, actually, John didn't want to be racist. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like when everyone's talking, you know? I know. I'm really talking too much? No, no, but it's fine. That we're I'm very glorious. <laughs> he kept saying, dude, you're asking so many questions and we haven't even ordered our food yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love it. I, I ordered the buffalo chicken sandwich and John had a turkey sandwich. And I got to tell you, Rebecca... It was delicious. I mean, unbelievably oh. delicious melt-in-your-mouth type of sandwich. And they make their own bread. I mean, it was it was probably the best sandwich I've had in a long time. I am legitimately jealous. We're recording this at lunchtime right now, <laughs> yeah. and this is unfair because I love an amazing sandwich. Oh, it's so good. And while I was there, they told me to check out their nearby farm and offered for us to stay at their hostel, which was a few blocks away. Oh, no, 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 no. Please tell me you didn't go to the farm or the hostel. Never go to the second location, Javier. Oh, of course, Rebecca. That is true crime 101. Never go to the second location. <laughs> but it, it was wild. I mean, everyone was genuinely nice. And if these people really work for free, I mean, they seem to be very happy doing it. It was just very strange. So that's the key to the, the uh, profitability. They have a deli. They're not paying uh, regular wages for their help, for their staff in the kitchen. But the key to their success always was free labor. Now, they would say, well, not really free because we provide room and board. But they have no 401k. They have no health care benefits, uh, no benefits to speak of. And, and when the people decide to leave such a group, they don't walk away with anything. They walk away with the the clothes that they have on on their on their body. They have no uh, severance pay. They have no benefits. It's easy to be profitable when you have such low overhead. And keep in mind, it's very difficult to leave these groups. In the case of the twelve tribes, there are many children that were born into this group. They were raised in the group. They don't know anything else, and no one really knows how the money is handled. There's no financial transparency in the groups we're talking about. So, you know, only the leader and the select few know where all the money goes. Gene Spriggs, the leader of the 12 tribes, died on January of 2021 at the age of 83. All right, Rebecca, it's your turn. Which cult are you going to visit? Um, how do I say this without freaking you out? One that really resonates with me, to be honest. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm going to tell you all about it right after this. I got to go home and up at the house for the carpet cleaners. You know, they're doing my whole place for $25? Oh, no, no, no. Not the sunshine carpet cleaners. Yeah, you heard of them? They're a crazy religious cult. The carpet cleaning is just a means for them to get into your apartment. Mm -hmm. 
So that, of course, was an iconic scene from Seinfeld when Kramer warns George about the sunshine carpet cleaning cult who recruits members after they've been hired to come to your home and clean your carpets. We're pretty much finished. There's just one more thing. There it comes. You forgot to sign your check. You sure uh, there isn't anything else? No. So that's it? Uh, Unless you need a receipt. So Sunshine Cleaners is just a fictional version, but it's a fictional version of an actual business called Christian Brothers Carpet Cleaning, which was one of several endeavors started by a religious movement called the Church of Bible Understanding. Now, of course, Javier, that's their name now. When they were founded in the early 1970s, their name was the Forever Family. It was founded by a man named Stuart Trail. And to be clear, this is definitely one of those, is it or isn't it a cult? type of organizations. They call themselves a communal organization that teaches a form of evangelical Christianity. And today, their headquarters are right here in New York City. How convenient. I know. So did you hire them to clean your carpets at your WeWork office? (laughs) Uh Very funny. (laughs) Nice call back there, but no. Now, remember how we talked about cults attracting people through specific targeted messages and interests? Yeah, sure. Well... I love antiquing and thrifting, so I discovered that this church's front-facing business is an antique store. It's just this amazing shop full of treasures. So once I learned that, it was not hard to convince me to go visit. The fact that it might also possibly be run by their cult members, it was basically, I'm like a kid on Christmas morning going to this place. So the Church of Bible Understanding owns and operates an antique store called Old Good Things, and they actually have three locations across Manhattan, also in Pennsylvania and L.A. And according to the tax filings in 2017, the store brought in over $2 million in revenue to the church, who used some of that money to support orphanages in Haiti. Now, for me, Javier, knowing that they do like social good with their funds and support this orphanage in Haiti... I'm basically past the point of needing to be recruited. I want to, like, sign up in blood immediately. Yeah, so far, so good, right? Right, exactly. But I do vaguely remember hearing about this cult, and there was some controversy around that orphanage that they support, right? Yep, there usually is. So the trouble began in 2012 when the orphanages that the church was supporting were investigated for substandard conditions. Then, six years later, the founder, Stuart Trail, died, and it caused a lot of dissension and confusion among the group. Like, what do we do now? But most tragically, just in 2020, a fire burned down one of the orphanages, killing 15 of the children. Apparently, the fire started because they were using candles because the generator was broken. I mean, it's horrific and just inexcusable. Well, that's terrible. I mean, it sounds like it could have been an accident, but it also sounds like it was they're running this orphanage, but not keeping it up and, and didn't sound completely safe. Well, put that awful experience aside. What was your shopping experience at this uh, old, what is it? <laughs> old good things. Old good things. Cult store. <laughs> um, it was amazing. I had no idea what to expect, but I did some research on their website, and what I learned was they salvage items from hotels and theaters in the city that are going to be destroyed. So they'll go in before something gets knocked down and get a chandelier and repair it and fix it and then sell it. 
at a premium. Okay, here we go. I'll see you in a minute. I go to the store and outside of the storefront on the sidewalk, there's these amazing sculptures out of metal and like reclaimed parts. There was this seven foot dinosaur, gilded mirrors. I was like, oh, I love this place already. Did you take pictures? I did. Go to my Instagram to see the pictures at Dialogue Pod. I want to see these. Sure. So what time is it? It's so fun. Sometimes antique stores can be a little stodgy and stuffy, right? But the vibe here was so warm and inviting. So what do you see that you like? I was greeted by more than one employee. And like your experience at the Yellow Deli, they were on the... They were definitely on that hippie spectrum, but a little bit older than the employees you mentioned. Yeah, Some of them were, you know, cutting wood and building things and others were just helping customers. And that was the other surprise, Javier. This store was bustling. Wow. I mean, it was a freezing cold Sunday afternoon and sometimes antique stores are just ghost towns. But yeah. this place had people going all around it. Now, take a listen to my conversation with the nicest guy who managed the shop. We didn't talk about the church or orphanage by name, but he definitely confirmed the connection. Is it still connected to um, like an orphanage? Do you still the support that yeah. yeah. Oh, do the stores support that? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. We don't publicize it because we don't want to. We don't want to work with the pity angle. Please buy from us. That's, it's not appropriate. Rebecca, it sounds like you and I have very, very similar experience where we visited an organization that's labeled a cult by some people, but really in reality, the people that we interacted with were genuinely nice people. So nice. And I have to say, this guy just came off very genuinely and sincere. And of course, I wasn't going to bring up the fires <laughs> to the, about the orphanage. I just let it be. But honestly, I got a really good vibe from him. Yeah. And I wasn't going to bring up the child beatings. <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's a time and place for everything. I didn't want them to spit in my buffalo chicken sandwich. But, you know, between the two visits, it's kind of clear that cult involvement or not, the people patronizing these businesses certainly didn't seem to be thinking or caring about that possible cult connection when they were there. I mean, the store I went to on a Sunday, very busy. Your restaurant, the Yellow Deli, had a line out the door. No, I wanted to ask the people. I was like, you know, do you know that you're at a cult restaurant? (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what I was thinking, too. Look, if you're from that town, you must have known that that this organization runs this uh, place, but it didn't seem to bother anyone. Same at this shop. People there were definitely just looking for mirrors for their beach homes. Both of us had a very pleasant experience, but we all know that that's just the surface, right? We don't know this organization from the inside, and they've gotten some really bad press. So how do they handle that? I mean, and what legitimate business hasn't had to learn how to deflect bad press? We call this public relations in the biz. Exactly. But in all seriousness, I can't imagine outside critics calling your company a cult being good for the business. So... I really wanted to know, how does a cult handle bad PR? And for this, we got to go back to Rick Allen Ross. So how do cults handle their reputation internally? And do they prepare to answer to criticism when rumors of this is a cult, their cult members start to circulate? Well, look, the leader is always right. So if you don't like the way things are being run and you're critical, you're probably going to be pushed out and made to feel that you need to leave. As far as criticism from the outside, 
there's a, a we they mentality in the group. We are the good guys. We have the answers. Our leader is right. Everyone else is wrong. And then the group can get really nasty, which Scientology certainly has a history of, and just sue. Javier, I couldn't let the opportunity pass without asking Rick about cults and their name changes. They just love a good rebrand. Oh, yeah. Gotta change things up. Yep. (laughs) And uh, there have been a number of groups that have done that over the years. They changed their name, like the Children of God, uh, which is a notorious group that once included the family of the actor River Phoenix and Joaquin Phoenix and has a horrible history of child abuse. Uh, River Phoenix said the first time he had sex in one interview was when he was four years old. He later died from a drug overdose at the age of 23. So the children of God, they changed their name to the Family International, and they kind of uh, shed their leader, Moses David Berg, who was a pedophile and who raped his daughter, his granddaughter, and, and so on, just a horrible human being. So they may change their name, but that's just PR. They don't really change who and what they really are. You've got your CEO. A business always has other people in place to fill other roles. I'm curious. We're curious. Do cults typically have a second in command? Somebody dedicated and designated to take over should the leader be be removed for some reason, legally, death, whatever it may be? I think most cult leaders are kind of like uh, Joseph Stalin. If they see someone who possibly could replace them, they might neutralize that person or take them out because they want their authority to be absolute and unchallenged. It, It depends on the group and whether or not the group has assets. The key to them going on, in my mind, is how successful as a business has the group been. Have they accumulated a lot of real estate? Have they accumulated a lot of money? Is there that motivation for someone to step into the void and say, I'll be the new leader? For example, when L. Ron Hubbard died, the founder of Scientology, his estate was estimated at over $600 million. And there was an individual, David Miscavige, who was a young 20-something personal secretary and became the gatekeeper for L. Ron Hubbard at the end. And he was in a perfect position, even though Hubbard was survived by family, to take over. And he did. And Scientology now has been valued in the billions. So David Miscavige took over because he was at the right place at the right time. Why do destructive cults fail? Well, I think most commonly they cross a line of criminality. Uh, That's what happened to Keith Raniere. The more power he got, the more he wanted. The more money he got, the more he wanted. The more sex he got, the more he wanted. And he just kept going on and on. So frequently what happens is the law. The law comes to town. For example, let's take a polygamous sect, very large group known as the uh, FLDS or the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. Warren Jeffs was a pedophile. He raped kids, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, and he started to make that part of the group's practices. And the law caught up with him, and now he's in prison. You've already touched on a couple, but does one 
ending stand out for a cult just as being really memorable and dramatic? I mean, there's there's several kind of iconic ones. Which one stands out to you? Well, the the one that will always stand out in my mind will be the Waco Davidians, because I dealt with uh, David Koresh when he was uh, known as Vernon Howell. That was his real name. So what stands out in my mind are so many families that contacted me that had loved ones that were in that compound. There were almost a, a hundred people that died when Koresh decided to set fire to the compound. And the, the, how broken they were, how, how tragic that end was. There were 19 children that died in the fire. They were literally burned to death, and it was a horrible end. A, a group that not too many people know about is a church called Victory Church in Grand Forks, North Dakota, which had hundreds of members, including three medical doctors. We were on Oprah Winfrey, and Oprah Winfrey decided to expose this group. And the group, they, they threatened Oprah Winfrey with a lawsuit. And Oprah Winfrey had the resources that she said, oh, really? Give it a shot. And she triumphed in the litigation. Oprah, the cult exterminator. We can add to her <laughs> lengthy list of credentials. I love this. I loved Oprah before. And now, <laughs> well, you know what? Oprah, it cuts both ways. You know, I, I worked with Oprah on that show and we exposed that cult. But keep in mind that Oprah Winfrey uh, was also a person that promoted John of God, who has now been exposed as a cult leader and is facing charges of sexual abuse of, oh. of women members. And then don't forget the sweat lodge guru, James Arthur Ray. Oprah promoted the, uh, a DVD called The Secret, and Ray was a featured guest on Oprah Winfrey. And as a result, many people became enamored with Ray, and they were involved in his programs, his seminars, which ended in Sedona, Arizona, in a sweat lodge tragedy where four people died of basically dehydration. They were sweat to death. And I, I don't think Oprah's really ever come out and really laid it out and said, you know, I'm terribly sorry that I ever promoted The Secret or James Arthur Ray or John of God. I, I think she should. I think mm. I, I think Oprah is kind of a a two-edged sword. On one hand, she has helped many people that have suffered in cults. On the other hand, she has promoted some rather dubious characters on her show with kind of fringe belief systems that have also hurt people. And don't forget about her book club. <laughs> Rebecca, we talked about these morally bankrupt cults that crashed and burned. I mean, some of these cults have had spectacular endings. I mean, some of these cults probably never even had the intentions of expanding. That's not always the goal for some of these groups. That brings up a great point. Can a cult survive without its leader? Yes. Well, not yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What happens to a cult after a leader dies or goes to jail? I mean, nobody talks about that. Exactly. And that is the very concept that inspired us to make this series, right? Yeah. So do you have a cult in mind? Oh, yeah. We can't end this series without talking about this little-known cult called Love Has Won. And even though it's not really a household name, this internet-led cult managed to rack up tons of money. Or in the case of Amy Carlson... 
the, this group that she led in Colorado call it, called Love Has Won. When, when Carlson died, it, it appears, apparently, one member took off with whatever money and assets they had, which were substantial, even though the group was small. Estimates were that there was more than a half a million in assets that had been accumulated in cash and real estate. Rebecca, let's talk about this cult, because we need to understand where they came from in order to appreciate how crazy it is that this cult is still chugging along. I mean, do you mind if we take a little detour here for a second? Javier, who are you talking to? Do I mind? Right. (laughs) Amy Carlson is a new age cult leader who is also known as Mother God. Her followers literally think she is God. I told you guys I was coming. Nobody believed, like, what? And then if it happened, oh my God! Shit. That's Amy Carlson talking to her followers, by the way. I've been in this for 12 years. Not, well, okay, that's 19 billion years. We'll go back that far. 19 billion years, Rebecca, which is a very, very long time. (laughs) Way longer than the actual universe which is only 14 billion years old. Yeah, I mean, come on, what was God doing those 5 billion years in between? Who knows? (laughs) Playing Sudoku. (laughs) (laughs) Playing Wordle. (laughs) Wordle. Amy Carlson may not be good at measuring the age of the universe, but she is very good at recruiting. The group's YouTube page has almost 10,000 subscribers, which they use to raise money, sell homeopathic medicine, and sign up new recruits for a paid one-on-one session. But in a twist of fate that none of her followers saw coming, the immortal mother god died sometime around April 2021. No one really knows exactly when. Most likely due to alcohol abuse, anorexia, and consuming a ridiculous amount of colloidal silver, which is a miracle substance popular among conspiracy theorists as a cure for everything, including COVID-19. What we've got is a search warrant to check this house. This is body camera audio from a Colorado sheriff's deputy searching the Love Has One house where Amy Carlson lived with 20 other members. I'm here to see mother and I need to check on the child. Mother is in rest. Okay, she has rested. You're good. Do you have anything on you? Mother is in rest, says one of the Love Has One members, and boy, was she resting. Authorities found the mummified corpse of Amy Carlson stuffed in a sleeping bag wrapped in Christmas lights. Her skin was blue, almost like this blue-purplish hue, like a smurf, probably from all that colloidal silver that she was taking, and her face was covered in glitter, and her eyes were missing. That's just, I think, decomp. Decomp? Decomp mummification. That's what I'm guessing at this point. The eyelids and stuff. The eyelids they painted, yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. This has been a while. Yeah. Rebecca, a blue mummified body with no eyes wrapped in Christmas lights. I truly didn't fully grasp what that looked like until I watched the video. And honestly, it's one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen. Yeah, it's the kind of thing you don't unsee once you see it. And not like, it's just terrifying in an unexpected way. And and this just shows you how sick true crime podcasters are. (laughs) That I'm at a New Year's Eve party with a bunch of dudes and I'm like, hey, I... 
I have, the, have you seen this crazy video of this mummified cult leader? And, <laughs> and I was so excited to show it to them. And they all were like, no, 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 I don't want yeah. to see this. Most people don't want to see that, Javier. <laughs> but it is so grotesque. I mean, yeah. it, there's a moment in the video, and I wish this was a video podcast, when the, when the deputy approaches the bed where Amy Carlson is stuffed in the sleeping bag. And at first, you can't tell what you're really seeing. Like, you can't really see the blue skin and the face and all that stuff. And then he flips on this light <laughs> and boom, out of nowhere, the blue mummified cult leader with no eyes just shows up. And it's like something out of a horror movie. But a horror movie would rewrite it because it's too outlandish. Like that's what's so crazy is that it's truly stranger than fiction. Yeah, it really is. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Jerome, put your hands behind your back for me, please. Seven members of the group were charged with abuse of a corpse as well as child abuse because two children were living in this mess. Those charges were later dropped and you guessed it, this group is still operating without Mother God. Members continue to post regularly. Here's a clip from their YouTube channel. Once again, why is no one talking about what mom did? Why is it? It's like the mind is so obsessed with trying to figure it out. And they're so obsessed with the word cult. They're so hung up on trying to figure it out trying to say we're a cult, we're not allowed to leave, we're held against our will, now you should be embarrassed. Now you should actually be mortified of how dumb you are. Rebecca, we can make an entire series just on Love Has One. I spoke to a former member on Facebook Messenger who told me that she was not interested in talking and said that there's even a Netflix and HBO doc underway. Well, I'm not surprised, and I'll definitely be watching. Uh, But when we come back, let's talk about Nexium and what happened to the group after Keith Raniere went to prison. Rebecca, we're talking about this idea of what happens to a cult after the leader is removed. And in the case of Nexium, you know, the MLM cult that we talked about last time? Was it able to move forward without Keith Raniere? I asked Sarah Edmondson the same question. Were you aware of any organizational succession plans? Like like if shit hit the fan, if Keith got removed or Nancy went down or whatever happened, was there some next of kin in place that you guys were aware of? If there was, we weren't aware of it. I mean, I wasn't. I, I thought that by the time I got to green that I was in the inner circle, but I wasn't. And luckily for Sarah, she was able to leave the cult just before it came crashing down. But as you know, getting branded itself wasn't what woke me up. It was finding out that it was the leader's initials. After I was branded and before I woke up, Lauren started saying, you have to submit new collateral every month. And starting with submitting my, um, the deed to my home. Rebecca, explain collateral. Uh, in a word, blackmail. Collateral is shameful, incriminating information that new DOS recruits would give to their master to ensure their silence and loyalty. Think nude pics and horrible lies about your closest friends and family. Hmm. And at that point, I was like, I didn't think I was, I didn't even, hadn't even woken up, but I was like, I'm not doing that. Like, there's no way that I'm doing that. I can't do this anymore. Like, I joined this thing, master slave, it's an exercise to like 
it's a kind of a game, you know, but then it wasn't a game. And then, then I had realized that the symbol on my body was not a symbol for the four elements, but it was Keith's initials. And then it really wasn't a game. I think that the people that were with Keith got head fucked in a way that I'll never know. Mm. And I luckily managed to escape that. Once Nancy and Keith are removed, was there this momentary like pause in everything? Did it all fall apart quickly or were people filling in the gaps and trying to keep it going? Once they were arrested, it seems like there's kind of two new leaderships. There's Esther. She took the people who still wanted to to stay together as a community. And they started in another MLM called Synergy Insurance. It's an MLM insurance scheme. And she's kind of like the top of that, the new queen bee, which is funny because she kind of always wanted that, but like didn't have the skill set in Nexium. Like she's a terrible recruiter. So I don't, I don't know how she's doing, but God bless you, Esther. If you're listening, I hope, wish you all the, all the best. And then there's the Dossier Girls. The Dossier Project is a group of former members of the secret sex cult within Nexium called DOS, little play on words there, who remain Keith Raniere loyalists despite the fact that he's been sentenced to 120 years in federal prison. Here's a clip from their YouTube channel. You know, so we relaunched and put a lot more content out in the last month or two. It's been four years of just one story. And now we're here to kind of go back and start from the beginning and help people understand how we got here. So we did put out, it was a mission statement that was written by the founding women of of DOS. And the idea was that there was going to be a website that would clarify some of the already lies that were out there about the organization, what it stood for, what its mission was and things like that. These women seem to go out of their way just to justify this group's strange behavior. So this week, we're going to talk about dun, 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 branding. It's People ask us about it all the time. I think this story got started with headlines like women branded like cattle and all this stuff. Women were supposed to be told, and as far as we know, everyone was, that there, were, there would be a brand. That's one of the things that if you're saying, yes, I want to be in DOS, you're saying, I agree that I will get a brand because that's what's being communicated to me. You're also agreeing to not being told everything. You know, no one was told you're going to know everything. And so if you're saying yes to be in DOS, you're saying yes to getting a brand. You're saying yes to not knowing everything. That should be all people really need to know because there was an agreement. There was consent. Here's Sarah Edmondson's reaction to the Dossier Project's stance on branding. The initial invitation is based on a fucking lie. It's not a woman's group. It's a blackmail MLM pyramid scheme started by a sociopath, limp dick, narcissistic douchebag. Nobody signed up to do those things. They signed up for a personal and professional development program. Nobody signed up to have Keith initials seared into their flesh. That is for sure. So Doss is saying that being branded is okay because a woman should have the right to choose what to do with their bodies. But they don't have the right to know what's going on, and the cult leader's initials are now permanently scarred on their hip. And they didn't know that it was the cult leader's initials. To me, this is actually just a disgusting exploitation of actual women's empowerment. All right, well, so how do they explain the whole master and slave thing? Because I can't imagine how they could interpret that. Let's play the clip. For one, 
none, none of us are here to enroll anyone into anything, and nor are we calling each other masters and slaves, unless it's a joke, you know. But I think it's it's good. Like people, it's good to see where people are at. Well, and if we were, so what? It's, it's not like, illegal. It's not illegal to call someone a name and it's especially not if it's agreed upon and the the un, the definition is understood you know that it's it's something different than how most people commonly use it a, a friend of mine sent me this dance video yesterday dancing to Britney Spears I'm a slave for you I don't know if you guys remember that song, super popular, you know, like I don't remember and maybe I just wasn't part of, you know, the discourse in this way, but I don't remember there being a big, you know, call to boycott Britney Spears and cancel her for hate crime and things like that. All right, let's go back to our expert, Rick Allen Ross, to get his thoughts on the Dossier Project. Could you briefly speak to the Dossier Project, if you're familiar with the women who are continuing to support Keith Raniere? He's obviously serving his more-than-life sentence, and these are women, I think it's a spin on DOS, they call it the Dossier Project. They stand by their uh, right to have chosen what they chose and believe that they were not under any course of control or influence. Can you talk about what you make of them in the post-Nexium era? Well, all I can say is, Rebecca, they're dead-enders. I mean, Keith Raniere's in prison. They're doing some podcasts in which Raniere was taped speaking from jail, and he's he's use, using his usual gibberish. This podcast was taken down by SoundCloud, who was hosting the Keith Ranieri jailhouse interview. But here's a clip of Ranieri talking to NBC News. You know, one of the things that's most important in our country is the justice system. And although, you know, people can hate me and do and think I'm an odious type of a character, you know... Awful, actually. These people have invested so much of themselves. They have given up careers. They have given up money. They have alienated themselves in many cases from family and old friends. And they they feel so emotionally and 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 personally invested in Keith Raniere that they're just going to continue on and on believing in him. I apologize for my participation. In all of this, this pain and suffering, I've clearly participated. I've been the leader of the community. You know, Rebecca, I was poking around the web and I found some cult leaders who've actually shown some sign of remorse. Take, for example, polygamous leader Warren Jeffs of the Fundamentalist Church of Latter-day Saints. Anybody who wants to read this message, that they may know that I have been a liar. I'm not the prophet. I never was the prophet. This is not a test. This is a revelation. Farewell. I love you. 
Yeah, and I'm not sure it's regret Charles Manson communicated when asked how he would be remembered, but he did seem to acknowledge that he wasn't... Well, just listen. Tell me in a sentence who you are. Scar and a jug of wine and a straight razor if you get too close to me. Warren Jeffs, there's a video of him saying that he's a false prophet. And Charles Manson says that I'm a nobody. Now, do cult leaders ever regret what they do? You know, it it varies, but I would say in the case of Warren Jeffs, yes, he went through a period where he was apparently remorseful. But he flipped on that, and he still is running the group from his prison in Texas. So, I mean, he's actually a a prisoner who will probably die in prison, but he continues to issue edicts and run the FLDS from his prison cell. And I would say that Keith Ranieri is more the standard example, which is him ranting and going on and on, and he's now serving a 130-year sentence. I was persecuted. I am a martyr. Uh, And he has these diehard followers who still believe in everything that that he said and everything that he did, and they will accept no idea in their mind that he is guilty of anything. So typically, even after they go to prison, they will continue to insist that they are innocent. In the case of Charlie Manson, you have to understand that Manson, his contention was, I had nothing to do with those murders, the Tate LaBianca murders. I wasn't there. I did not stab anybody. I did not kill anybody. And in fact, that's true. He actually weaponized his followers and gave them their instructions And then they did these horrible murders because of him and for him. But in his mind, he was just a a regular guy, an ordinary guy who had nothing to do with what happened. That was his apology. I don't know. What was it that Timberland said? Something about being too late to apologize? What do you think about their remorse, Javier? You know, I don't think they're that remorseful. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done it, right? But I do think that if you're going to start a cult, don't be overzealous, you know? Just... (laughs) (laughs) You can live together. You can have strange rules as long as you don't hurt anyone along the way. But the the, the key thing, if I've learned anything from these last three episodes, is that... Don't go big, you know, just keep it keep it small. Yeah, things get too big, they get harder to manage. Yeah, I mean, I think that the real thing to recognize, I mean, in all seriousness, is if you're part of an organization that's trying to cut you off from your family, from your friends, and it's not letting you have personal freedom and it's smothering you, I mean, those are all signs. I mean, that's all Rebecca and I want you guys to know is that we're all vulnerable. There's a cult for everyone. And just recognize the science. But other than that, the communal part, the the friendship and the love, like the, the, the what's in the marketing of a cult, yeah, you can keep that if you want. 
And also, there's no shame. If you have been approached by a cult or if you found yourself in one for any period of time, or perhaps someone listening is a survivor, like there is no shame in that. And I think that's also something we wanted to communicate through this. We also wanted to highlight that a lot of these cults' goals were for profit and power, and that's not any cult member's fault. You know, from former cult members that I've talked to, you know, they work, they have businesses, but then the cult kind of reaps the benefit of their hard work. I mean, just recognize that you are an entrepreneur yourself. You know, your money is your money. But you know what? I have no remorse about doing this series with you, Javier. This has been so much fun. I've learned so much. There's still more to learn about cults. I mean, who knew? Rebecca, we could write a book with the amount of research (laughs) that we did because we just did three episodes, but you should see our Google Doc. I mean, we have ranked our are not favorite cults, but like the, the, we have a list, a long list of cults. Why can't we have a favorite cult? They, they have a favorite (laughs) murder. We can have my favorite cult. That's true. There you go. Step aside. (laughs) Our favorite cult, new, new podcast next season. No, this has been an amazing collaboration. And yes, there's a lot that was left on the proverbial cutting room floor. Um, I'm probably going to put a lot of that on Patreon, actually. So if anybody is interested in what didn't make it into the podcast, you can go ahead and check that out with the Dialogue Podcast Patreon. But Javier, it's been just so cool to work with you. Oh, I mean, I, I've had a blast, too. I mean, this has been so refreshing to do something different. I hope the listeners enjoyed it. To everybody listening, if you don't already, you can enjoy more of Javier's talents on his not one, but two other podcasts, The Pretend Podcast, which focuses on con artists and the new season of his investigative show, Criminal Conduct is Out, which he co-hosts with John Taylor, who you heard in the infamous Yellow Deli pilgrimage, if you will. So definitely be sure to check those out. Yeah, this season we're interviewing a serial killer, so, you know. Oh my gosh, just (laughs) keeping it light. That's right, keeping it light. And yes, you can find Rebecca on Dialogue and Criminality, which is a show about crime and reality. It is so awesome. I don't even like reality shows, and I listen to you guys. It's uh, co-hosted with Melissa from Moms and Murder. So check out Rebecca on Dialogue Podcast and Criminality. Yep, that's how I manipulated you into getting the Real Housewives into this episode. I cannot believe (laughs) that we have a Real Housewives clip on this episode. You're welcome. You're welcome. And we just want to give a big thank you to our expert guests for their expertise and time. Dr. Yanya Lalich, Rick Allen Ross, Amanda Montel, and Sarah Edmondson. Thank you so much. Who knows? Maybe we'll do another crossover in the future. I mean, there's definitely a lot more cults to explore. Absolutely. I hope so. Creative Babble.